You're about to hear my conversation with Sir Christopher Mayer. Sir Christopher was the UK ambassador to the US and began his diplomatic career in 1968 while in Moscow. His view on the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the root cause of it, and what to expect is intriguing, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Sir Christopher Mayer. Sir Christopher had a long career as a diplomat uh, for the UK. Uh, got started in 1966 and culminated uh, in his posting to the US uh, from 1997 to 2003. Sir Christopher is here to talk all about the Russian-Ukraine situation. Sir Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I thought we get started with something that uh, an argument that you've recently made, which is that Putin is reacting out of humiliation. Um, why don't you expand on that comment a little bit more or, or that thought a little bit more? And uh, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I think there are two things to be said there. If your country, your nation, which historically has been a great nation, has had an empire, a Soviet empire and a czarist empire, disintegrates completely. You lose your sphere of influence. Uh, you find that you are bankrupted within a few years. You discover that the new president, Yeltsin, cannot is too drunk, too alcoholic to run the country properly, and there is complete disorder. You see all this going on around you. And where have you come from? You have come from the KGB, the fearsome Soviet intelligence service, where you are a lieutenant colonel and you are serving in East Germany in, in Dresden. It is plain as a pike staff. You don't have anybody to have to explain this to you, that somebody like Putin coming out of that career is going to be intensely humiliated by seeing this disaster going on around him. The nation of Peter the Great of Tsar Nicholas I, um, of uh, Vladimir Lenin, of Joseph Stalin, gone, blown apart, um, all in, in, in fragments. And who are the beneficiaries? The beneficiaries are the arch-rival, the United States, and its allies uh, to be found in NATO and in the European Union. If that is not a moment of humiliation, if that's not the ultimate definition of humiliation, then I don't know what is. But quite apart from that kind of third party observation, um, you have to read what Putin has said and what he has written. Now, there's a number of sources you can go to for this. But I think uh, that his speech to the Munich Security Conference, that's this annual thing that happens. It's like a, it's like a security Davos. I'm, I'm sure you know it, Matt. But, Putin's speech to the uh, Munich Security Conference in uh, 2007 um, spelled all this out. And adding to the humiliation was, of course, the expansion eastwards of, of, of NATO and uh, uh, European Union into the former nations of the Warsaw Pact, including even the three tiny little 
uh, Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, who uh, have frontiers with, with Russia itself. Um, and in addition to that speech, and I think one of the things that really upset him was nobody paid any attention to it. And it's really interesting. In addition to that speech is the great, what was it called, essay. Very long essay, several thousand words, which he wrote last year about Ukraine and, uh, uh, and Russia. Because if you look at all this, all the aspects of humiliation, the most sensitive point of it all, I think the phrase I use, the word I use was neuralgic, is Ukraine. The notion that Ukraine could, could be seduced, drawn, pulled into the world of the West with its liberal values was something which he absolutely uh, uh, could not tolerate. Those, I think, are the real features of his personal humiliation and the humiliation as he sees it of his country. Uh, very interesting. Um, given the background in his humiliation, uh, unsurprising that he's lashing out, I guess, I guess the question is uh, one of timing. So what prompted the invasion as of now? Uh, what was the, the catalyst to actually go and uh, do that with Ukraine? Well, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, was it some judgment of the objective situation or was there something happening to him? Has he got a sense of his own mortality, the need to do this, get this done um, before he, he disappears? Maybe there's a lot of talk about him having a disease. Nobody really knows whether this is true or not. But there was a lot in the international situation, I would suggest, that made him and his advisors think to themselves, well, if we're going to do this, best do it now. Now is the time to move. And I think what really discombobulated Russian calculations, and actually not only Russian calculations, was first of all the phenomenon of Trump. I mean, mm -hmm. who was Trump? I mean, there's a lot of intense suspicion that Trump was in some weird way beholden to, to the Russians. Um, and an extraordinary meeting, where was it, in Helsinki, I think, between uh, yes. Trump and, and Putin, where, where Trump said he uh, um, uh, found Putin more credible than he did his own intelligence uh, uh, resources. Uh, there was that. Uh, so I, I think for the Russians, it's a bit, also for, our, for, for America's allies, it's quite hard to work out you know, where, do you, where do you stand vis-a-vis -vis America. So everything seemed to be changing. And I think this shook him up in Moscow. And then along comes Biden, who looks to be a more uh, familiar, traditional type of president with whom, if they want to, they can do business. But Biden appears to show uh, a very big weakness, um, and that is in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, not in the fact of withdrawal, the policy of withdrawal, because... I think the Russians would agree it was a sensible thing to do because they had done it themselves. <laughs> of course, uh, yes. <laughs> they 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 had learned, uh, you know, they the Americans, us the Brits. We tried three times in Afghanistan and it always ended in failure. <laughs> uh, so we should know. Uh, 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 so the, the the chaotic withdrawal from 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 Afghanistan, um, the divisions inside the European Union, particularly with us the Brits leaving with with Brexit, Macron popping up and saying, 
NATO is brain dead, which is, I think, what he said in 2019. Um, and then the sense that Europe, with Macron as leader, as he, Macron, would like it to be, was angling for its own, what's the phrase the French use? Strategic autonomy, which would, by definition, separate it from, uh, from the Americans in NATO. So put all this together, plus uh, an army, a Russian army, where the generals come along and say, we've got a super army now, we've trained them all up, they're terrific, they've got fantastic resources, uh, we, we kicked ass in uh, Syria, um, we, um, you know, we, we are, we are, we, we're very good, and we know how to do these things, and we'll give you, we'll give you Kiev in three days, and, and, the, and the modern equivalent, the KGB, run by that poor chap who got humiliated in the televised National Security Council meeting by Putin. And, then, and the, the intelligence agencies are saying we've got people in place everywhere around Ukraine who can rapidly become uh, uh, puppet leaders. And, uh, and, the, and the Ukrainians will welcome us with flowers in their hair and all that. So you put all that together. Putin, Putin, Putin becoming a man in a hurry, I, th I think. I think. Um, and off they go. And the, the, the calculation is wrong on almost every score. Mm. It certainly appears uh, to be that way and, and uh, encountering much fiercer resistance from the Ukrainians. I'm, mm. I'm curious on your take on the Russian population as a whole. Um, given your background, uh, you, you were uh, stationed in Moscow in 1968 and, uh, and um, repeatedly throughout your, your uh, longer career. Um, I'm curious what you think of the uh, Russian uh, population and their resilience. I, I, it's hard, I'm hard pressed to think of a population over the past 150 years that has endured more. Um, that said, yeah. uh, they are being um, hit with crushing sanctions that will hollow out the middle class. Um, you know, uh, there's a cliche uh, way of saying that uh, the Cold War, uh, part of what ended the Cold War was blue jeans and rock and roll. I wonder if smartphones and McDonald's might be the equivalent nowadays. What are, what are your thoughts on the resiliency of the Re Russian population at this current point compared to its history? Well, this is, this is another very good question, because what we don't know, we do know that the Russians are capable of putting up with the most incredible suffering. Um, and um, they've demonstrated this time after time after time. But what we have not seen, at least I think in living memory, is what happens with a population that has known a very significant increase in living standards, mm. uh, the arrival of the consumer society, uh, Ferragamo, Gucci, uh, you name it, all those smart shops off Red Square, um, the old the old market, which is now sort of a kind of a kind, a kind of bit, bit like Harrods actually, um, mm. and all that stuff for the bourgeoisie of the cities, and maybe to some extent of the countryside as well, the, the, the standard of living has gone up. I don't know to be honest with you. What then happens to the resilience of the Russian people who have had something which they have enjoyed and have assumed it's going to get better, and it's suddenly taken away from them? Um, credit cards disappear. And we can all laugh a bit about McDonald's, but McDonald's was a talismanic event. I remember in 1990, McDonald's mm -hmm. arrived in Moscow. This was a huge thing. It was a massive thing. It was so symbolic. 
and that's gone. And these things have gone overnight. And I don't know. Um, so take something away from people who've enjoyed it before. And then I think we are in uncharted territory about how they will react if things continue to deteriorate, as they may well do. Talk to me a little bit about your view on China, uh, how China's relationship with Russia, uh, how, how that is right now, uh, and how important it is uh, for Putin to enjoy a seemingly a friendly relationship with, uh, with Beijing right now. Well, I think China is very important to Putin. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, one is, um, I think he began to realize that he, was gonna, he wasn't going to have any friends anywhere in the West, and he didn't need to have an enemy in the East. I mean, China and Russian relations historically have been pretty fraught. Uh, and they've, they've, they've had arm, armed conflict. They've had all kinds of, of, of difficulties. And I think China, uh, Xi, uh, President Xi and President Putin have gone out of their way to try, try to make this um, a warmer and more cooperative relationship. I, I believe from my two postings to Moscow, when I used to see quite a lot of Chinese diplomats, because they knew things about Russia which we didn't know and found hard to find out, and we offered the same uh, prospect to them, so there was some area for, for common ground. And the Chinese just, in my experience, and this is very subjective, and I'm only one person, but the Chinese did not like Russians. They were suspicious of them, and to a certain extent, they despised them as barbarians. Uh, whereas, if you talk to the Russians about the Chinese, they always used to say they're completely untrustworthy, you never, they, they're two-faced, you never know, and they're, and they're after our territory all the time, and they're not nice people. And um, uh, I believe that mutual suspicion, mutual antipathy, is actually the true nature of the relationship. Mm. But the thing is, the transactions get interesting. Uh, Russia has got a load of raw material, uh, sure. which he wants to sell to the Chinese, uh, for example. And I think the Chinese now see an opportunity to make an enormous amount of money out of Russia, because Russia has now been crushed to death by sanctions. Um, the Chinese, uh, for things that the Russians need, and we're talking about drones here, I mean, we're talking military, well, that's mm -hmm. what the rumor is, uh, the Chinese can drive a very high, high price, a very hard bargain, because Russia's got nowhere else to go. I mean, they have some places to go, um, but their main sources of, uh, of, of advanced, advanced industrial goods are close to them, not to mention the banking system. So I think China is in a very good way, very good position to exploit Russia here. But, and I think there's a huge but here, my, my, I'm not a China expert, although I've had a lot of dealings with them, but I'm not a China expert, but I do feel they are very keen to put distance between themselves and the destruction and death which is taking place in, in Ukraine. Um, and if they could do a bit of mediation and come out smelling of roses, they would love to do so. And, and what's the likelihood or probability that that is the sort of the condition that sees the end to the conflict, a mediated uh, solution by the Chinese? Or, or what, do you, what do you think the likely resolution for the Ukrainian conflict will be? I don't know. 
I really don't know if the, if the if the Ukrainians don't collapse militarily, if they keep on fighting, and they'll keep on even if 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 Russia can de declare mission accomplished, which I don't think it would be able to, but even if it could, uh, Ukrainians have gone fighting in guerrilla groups. They've probably set up a government sure. in exile, and so the thing just goes on and on and on. Um, at some point, Putin has got to come to the realization that he needs to settle. And I'm not sure what his bottom line is in all this. I just don't know. Um, he has a tendency when things get difficult to, to double down because he likes to keep his uh, his, his opposition uh, 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 off balance. And so instead of acquiescing in some way, he will become even more aggressive, which makes the situation, by the way, incredibly dangerous. And we get, you know, the, the nuclear red line is has never been more evident uh, than it is now, and it is far more dangerous than 1962, um, I think, in my view. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure where this is, where this is going to come out. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is the answer has to come from within Russia itself, which means that somebody pushes Putin aside, and somebody else comes in and says, "Okay, let's do a deal." The other thing we don't know, uh, at least I don't think we don't know, um, is what the Ukrainians are now saying to the Russians in this negotiation that's going. I'm not quite sure what the ambit of this negotiation is whether it's limited to humanitarian corridors or is it something um, bigger than that. I just don't know. Mm. Uh, but it's very uncertain and very, very dangerous. I wish Henry Kissinger was in, in office. You just alluding to Kissinger and then uh, 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, to suggest that it's more dangerous at that time is terrifying uh, since uh, I think the nuclear clock as, as they have it was a second away from midnight. Um, I guess what's what's behind the pessimism? I, I would suspect that um, the majority of people wouldn't ex wouldn't view this conflict as as dangerous as uh, something like the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, well, maybe expand on your pessimism there. Well, I'll say this. Cuba, Cuba never had a grip on Russia's Soviet Union's historic imagination. Cuba was by no stretch of the imagination and at any time in the history of the universe uh, part of Russia. Sure. It was an alien culture. So the Politburo said to Khrushchev, or Khrushchev said to the Politburo, you know, incinerating ourselves for Cuba isn't worth the candle. And Kennedy had the wisdom to offer Khrushchev a kind of way out with the withdrawal, what was it, Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Yes. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a face saver. Uh, but one notes that within two years, Khrushchev had been removed from power. And I think that was probably in part the price he had to pay for the Cuba fiasco. Now we are dealing with a territory, Ukraine, which arouses the most profound emotions among certain Russians, which unfortunately include Putin and the people around him, the Sidoviki, the hard men, uh, and, many, and many Russians of an older generation. Um, it's like for Putin to lose 
Ukraine to the Western sphere of influence is like losing a limb or an eye or something like that. And that's what makes it dangerous because an element of irrationality comes into this, that realpolitik gets pushed out of the door or could be pushed out of the door. And that's where I think the danger lies. Against that, I know this, my, my, my wife is half Russian from, uh, from, from the time of the revolution. Her, her, her mother was, was, was Russian. But they have a lot of Ukrainian blood. And so many Russians are married into or mixed with Ukrainians that the notion of war against them is abhorrent. So there are all these things stirring in the pot. But what worries me is there are no rules of the road. There is no objectivity. There, there is too much emotion going around. And it's deeply dangerous. Is there any way to put the genie back in the bottle? Or do we have to define new rules going forward? Yeah, no, I think we define new rules. I think this is, this is where, I mean, it, the first thing, I think this thing can only. I'm not, this is not what I'm saying is not original. Um, this has been this has been said and written by many political scientists in Europe and in the United States. Is that you can't settle this in a long-term stable way if you're just talking about Russia and the Ukraine. Actually, you've got to think about the what's that phrase you hear all the time? The European security architecture. You've got to look at that again. The last time we did that, we, Russia, America, Canada, the Europeans, was 1974-75 at Helsinki. We had the Helsinki Final Act, um, which set out a vision of Europe, which actually has proved quite durable, quite durable. And the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, still exists and still functions and has, I think, um, observers in, in Ukraine itself, even now. Uh, and that needs to be revisited. That is what I would do. I would revisit that. And to get around this uh, terrible issue of the Ukrainians will never have neutrality forced upon them, um, you have to approach it in a different way and see where are the common interests and the common interests are, I think, in durable, stable, long-term arms control agreements. You approach it, you don't approach it from the neutrality of Central Europe, for example, which is what the Russians want. You say to them, let's do another agreement on conventional forces. Let's do another agreement on intermediate nuclear weapons, both of which agreements have now lapsed from the first age of detente, um, and go at it that way. So you could then still have countries like Poland and Bulgaria and Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, Hungary, blah, 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 as members of NATO. But if there's a conventional forces agreement which dictates how it is you move large formations of infantry around the place, it becomes less of less 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 worrying if you renew intermediate nuclear forces agreement again so you could end up in a situation where you have no large military formations from nato that is in ukraine and no intermediate nuclear missiles because of the deal um and 
the Ukrainians can still say we would like to be members of NATO. <laughs> but they wouldn't have the wherewithal um, actually to be able to launch attacks on Russia if that's what they're really afraid of. And is there the political capital right now, I guess in the West specifically, when I think, when I look around the, the major players, you have uh, Biden, who seems like he's going to be um, hamstrung in the midterms. Uh, certainly the rise of Trump uh, threw everything into a blender a little bit uh, on the geopolitical side. Uh, Johnson um, having a challenge in, uh, with his parliament in the UK. We can sort of go new leadership in Germany, Macron uh, sort of going to, uh, away from NATO. Is there is there leadership that can actually see a conference like that and, and come to some sort of detente? It's, I, I, I don't know. I think you would probably, if you were going to have that kind of conference, you probably need to, get, need to go through a couple of US presidencies at least to bring it to, to fruition. So I can't imagine, I mean, I think that another factor in all of this, which may have been a part of Putin's calculation, was, uh, well, I needn't worry about Biden because in 2024, it's going to be Trump or, or a Trump-like Republican president. Uh, his, right. his people may have said that to him. It's possible. Uh, uh, and I think that we, we, are, we European members of NATO uh, have the same concern. Who is going to be president in 2024? Is it going to be a, a, a Trump-like a Trump person? And what attitude would a Trump-like person have towards NATO? I mean, I mean, Donald was pretty dismissive. Hmm. But who knows? They may, a, a Republican may see some virtue in hanging tough with the Russians. I mean, I, I just don't know. I think, I think the most interesting thing, actually, Matt, in all of this, uh, Johnson has stabilized a bit because he's, 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 he's played well. Um, he's seen to have played well. On, on Ukraine. Um, mm. uh, the most interesting thing I don't is less Macron's attempt to use his presidency of the European Union to leverage French influence. Uh, that's a natural thing to do, and he's and he's done it. I mean, I don't hold that against him. Is is the extraordinary German U-turn on defence spending, and that Schultz, mm. who yes. looked like the most boring Chancellor the world had ever seen. <laughs> uh, uh, suddenly gets up and makes these dramatic statements about increasing the German defence budget. I think he's buying, Germans are buying F-35s as fast as they can off the shelf. And these, you know, these are incredibly expensive aircraft. Uh, mm. And that is the most... So I wouldn't... I would not exclude um, a kind of inner directorate of presidents and prime ministers who actually can drive this thing along. There's all kinds of really tough-minded, interesting leaders in the Baltic states, for example, tiny little countries who punch way above their weight. You never know what kind of influence they'll have. Poland, big, big nation, big, big nation. Sir Christopher, this has been uh, fascinating. Uh, one last question before, before you leave. Um, who do you pay attention to for perspectives on Russia, Ukraine, or the, the broader topics that we've talked about? Uh, who do you find some of the most compelling current thinkers on this? Oh, God, what a killer question. Um, you've really got me there, actually. I mean, I, 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 hmm. my, brain, my brain is sort of fried at the end of every day because I've read so many articles by so many interesting people. Uh, I tell you, I tell you who is very good. I think is Anatol Levin, 
um, who is used to write for the Times, London Times, that is, who writes for, uh, who suddenly appeared in the Financial Times last Saturday. It's a very good piece on mm. the people around Putin and, and, and their state of mind and what drives them and so on and so forth. Englishwoman Fiona Hill, who used to be in Trump's National Security Council, mm -hmm. and she got, she got uh, fired by Trump, but she's always good on Russia. Oh, there, there are tons of them. Well, you gave us two names. That's well. That's, I ought to better give you more. There's a good book, actually. There's a good book on our sort of kind of history of Putin. Uh, it's not bad. Hmm. By a woman called Catherine Belton. I've got a, I've got a pile of articles about sort of a foot high in in my office, uh, which I've found enlightening. I appreciate you uh, spending the time and and agreeing uh, to your thoughts on on the Russia-Ukraine and broader. Um, situation geopolitically. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah, well, thank you very much indeed. I much enjoyed it. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 